You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are back once again with Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, chapters 16 to 32. Herds is in the hot seat. And Herds, I I hope you're having a good bit of fun with this book because it has thrown some curveballs at your theories. It's thrown some softballs at your theories. It's thrown a truck at your theories. Some just right theories. Look, it's thrown all the the curveballs at my face. And thankfully, I still hold, have all the skin on my face, which is the main <laughs> thing, more than I can say for uh, for Ern, Ernst's hand. Uh, which can I say? I know this is this is the lighthearted yeah. part of this chat, but good grief! I didn't really feel much any pain or discomfort as he yes. was being hit yes. by the coffin, as he was describing his hand being mangled. But as soon as he said. The technical term is degloved. Yes. My stomach. I had exactly <laughs> the mouth. same reaction. I had a very visceral image in my mind of yeah. what degloving is. I it's remember the horrifying. first time we had Benjamin Stevenson on the show, we were talking about like morbid humor and its and its mm. role. And you you definitely get that. Like yeah. there was a scene you were mentioning to me before we came on where he like goes to like wave to acknowledge something and someone's like, Oh, nice glove to the kitchen yeah, mitt that he has put bit. over his degloved hand and it's like fused to yes. the flesh. It's so gross. Oh, it! Oh my goodness. I mean, that look, we just can't stop tormenting this guy. Like when we find out that, that Michael has been killed, mm. he rips the glove off Ugh. of his hand so he can try and do CPR. Yeah. And then he puts it back on and then we get nice glove, dude. Now let's, let's put that to bed. That's we have over. To? No more, no more uh, <laughs> hand shenanigans no more going hand on. Trauma. Okay. Yeah. It's so interesting what we go through in this set of chapters because we go through looking at a lot more of the family history, particularly mm. what happened to the third brother, Jeremy, who so died in a car while their mother was being involved as a victim in a bank heist. She was not the victim for very long. Though. She was not the she victim was for very, very long. very angry. Yeah. <laughs> she very gunny. Like <laughs> steals the shotgun from one of the perpetrators. Uh. It's a fantastic scene. You go through this scene of them sitting in a sweltering car on the roof and the acknowledgement that Jeremy's like passed away in the heat. And then you get mm. a publisher's email. The contrast going from that incredibly harrowing scene to just this blunt, technical, jargony, like industry email. Yeah is just what a punch it's it's really great like it's a really good way of of showing that like callousness of you know you're creating a product for us to sell yeah but also it's kind of a good palate cleanser from going from this extremely emotional situation to a much a, a very neutral one like deliberately you know a lawyer has drafted this email it's a very neutral mm. situation to be in to get you set up for the next scene it's it's sort of the same thing i was saying last week with some of the jokes where like the jokes that don't land still do so much for the story sure. i thought this joke landed <laughs> but it also does all of these other things mm. for the function of the story in terms of the pacing in terms of like resetting you as an audience it's mm. like surprising how well it works for how face value just uncomfortable and silly it is. It is also a really good, just to talk about this letter even more, it's such a good bit of foreshadowing because yeah. the very last note is, yes, of course we can funnel some of the the, the money that we make from this book to the, the Lucy estate or yes. whatever. We've been told several times now that this cigarette will be her last. And maybe mm-hmm. that's misdirection. Maybe she's just given up on, on smoking because yeah. she knows it's bad for your lungs. But she's all alone in the woods and there's a killer on the loose. Mm-hmm. I do not have high hopes for her survival. It's kind of fun because it reminds me of when we were covering SS Van Dyne. And Van Dyne, obviously, his set of rules is talking all about like the tropes of the genre and how it makes certain books unpalatable. But yet you read Van Dyne's novels and it's like, 
gosh, pot kettle black, my friend. <laughs> uh, whereas in this book, even though it's doing that same thing, it feels much more self-aware about doing so. Mm. And you get something out of that self-awareness as the audience because of the way that Ernest as a narrator and Benjamin Stevenson as an author is putting that self-awareness directly in your face. And of course, having that extra layer between us and the author having earn in the way to say, hi, I'm someone who is really in these events. And mm. these, this is my story that I'm telling you lends that element of authenticity, where if this literally was Benjamin Stevenson telling you, I am the author of this novel, I am a real human being. You'd be like, but are you really like, I don't, this is a lemony snicket situation. Like what is going on here? <laughs> I don't, yeah. You, you can't trust Benjamin Stevenson in the same way you can trust uh, Ern Cunningham. Yeah. I don't necessarily have a qualitative judgment on this thought, but it did strike me that as we went further into the novel, the book has already kind of set up and taken all of its narrative risks. There's yep. nothing new and surprising metatextually that the novel is adding later on. Mm. And I'm totally okay with that. I think that the pacing in that regards is really brilliant. But it also strikes me how much of a risk Benjamin Stevenson took as an author choosing to do it that way. Like, yep. why not have another metatextual section like chapter 14.5 was a bit later into the book so that you can continue having this like, ah, here's another bit of reliability I can throw you away and also subvert. But I do think, as I said, that it is a bit of a risk and I really respect that risk and how well Benjamin Stevenson is using that risk to his advantage. I'm excited to see what other kills they could possibly throw in the book because either <laughs> we're going to have some really serious Cunningham death yeah. on the horizon or... We're going to uh, be having some some flashbacks, which throwing a two for a flashback that just seems cheating in a way. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was really good in this section, and we'll obviously get more into depth in this in the mystery section, is the current extra kills that we have. Mm. For example, you know, we, we had Jeremy in the car that we mentioned in a flashback mm -hmm. sequence. Yep. We have uh, the coffin with two bodies in it inside the truck that gets launched into a lake. We mm. have Michael in the drying room who is also killed by the same like ash method Green Boots Man was. Yeah, they go into some really horrific detail with it now that it's to a character that we actually know and care about and who we can more or less trust. Like he's Michael is, has been set up at this point as a man who has done wrong but is trying to make up for it. Yeah. And whether or not that's, you know, he's entirely doing good here is up to question. But I felt as though when he tells Ernie, he says, you go in my truck and it'll explain everything to you and we can finally be on the same page, brother to brother, I believed him. Yeah. And now he's dead. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so, yeah, Benjamin Stevenson just really takes his time describing the horrific pain yeah. and the methodical nature of the kill at just how long you need to sit there screaming and, and inhaling ash yeah. before your body finally gives way. I, and I think it's also so good because we'd already had the method of murder set up earlier when people were researching what happened to Green Boots Man. So you as an audience already kind of know the facts of the case, which means that when it happens to Michael and we're recapping that, we can get much more into the feeling of it. And the other thing I really appreciated about it is, of course, as we're going through that long procedure out into the snow, Ern's metatextual narration really sells the agony of the amount of foreshadowing he's able to put in there. Like he's like, oh, there was the sound of a chainsaw going. Yeah. Who's chopping trees in the middle of a blizzard? <laughs> it was the leaf blower blowing ash in or something like that, yeah. right? It's super interesting getting that rewarded to you by the novel on a first read. Sure. And I didn't feel like that was taken away from me on a reread was the really interesting thing because there still were enough other details. Yeah. I definitely like that it's, it's like the murder weapon that is that, 
that device something that is detected yeah. by Knox rules, obviously. It's it's detected by the detective, and so he has to tell us about it, but he doesn't realize what it is at the time. Yeah. He's reliable but uncompetent. Uncompetent? Incompetent. Yep. Uncompetent <laughs> perspective. Incompetent. Yep, yep. <laughs> I know what I said. I know what His reliable said. but uncompetent perspective allows us to foreshadow the murder weapon in a in a very well fairly direct way. Yeah. I like that the kill was detected through sound yes. rather than vision because the most classic way of being like they're dead is there's a bloody knife and the blood is everywhere and there's a dead body. But detecting a kill through the sound of the person dying or the murder weapon going oh, off wow. is also really fun. That It's a nice change. That's been the same for the previous kill as well when the phone rings. Mm-hmm. It's another sonic clue. I hadn't yeah. thought about that. That's actually really interesting. Yeah, that's because – and I, I imagine that this is tying into the – visibility and aspect there's the of phone the snowfield. ringing when jeremy dry dies in the car as well, there well. you go there yes. you go look see i wasn't even thinking about that one it's just so solid and i really enjoy the book being this adventurous having such good foundations yeah i mean this novel go back it's all set up it's interesting there's another sound clue that we've come across that you haven't quite had the reveal oh no. for oh yet. No. you've seen you've seen the clue but i don't think you know what it is yet it's not, it's not a pigeon's calling i'm is very it? i'm very <laughs> satisfied with uh with that thought now that you've put it in my oh head no. well i'm glad that i was a genius without knowing that i was <laughs> Alrighty, we should wrap this part of the discussion here and herds when we come back you have a mystery to solve so I hope you enjoy that. Right now, we're going to jump over and chat with Nikki Mottram about her debut crime fiction novel, Crow's Nest. So stick around for that. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour here on 2SER 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you out on the 31st of January. Nikki Mottram joins the world of crime fiction with her debut crime novel, Crow's Nest telling the story of child protection worker Dana Gibson, who is relocated temporarily from Sydney to Toowoomba for work. I'm joined on the line by Nikki right now. Nikki, welcome to Death of the Reader. It is wonderful to have you and welcome to the crime fiction family. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I guess the first thing I wanted to get into is what made you take the jump to the world of crime fiction? You obviously have a bit of a background in child protective services uh, that has kind of motivated Dana's character in this. What what kind of pushed you to write fiction in that orientation? Um. I'd always loved crime, I guess. I'd grown up like a lot of people on a, a bit on a diet of Agatha Christie and, um, you know, Daphne du Maurier. And I watched a lot of crime television shows like Cracker and Prime Suspect. So I was just always interested, I guess, in human behaviour and the psychology behind crime. So it just seemed like a natural progression for me to write crime. Yeah, I think it's it's really exciting the way that you've integrated the idea of like social services into this book, because it's something that I think more modern fiction is definitely becoming more familiar with, but a lot of the classic fiction that you've mentioned there kind of lets fly under the radar. Putting character first in that kind of way when you're dealing with social services kind of makes sense, but talk to me a little bit about the importance of understanding not just the why of the murder in a murder mystery, but the why of the people in the murder mystery. Yeah, I guess I just thought um, writing from the perspective of a child protection worker would offer a really unique lens, and it wasn't one I'd actually kind of seen used before in crime fiction. I mean, that's not to say that there hasn't been, um, you know, a social worker used, but it just wasn't something I saw very often. 
And so I thought it would be interesting to kind of come at a crime and a murder from, I guess, a more kind of family-oriented perspective. And I felt that, um, you know, if Dana kind of felt like if she could figure out what was happening with the dynamics of the family, um, then that would give her a lot more kind of insight into the murders and she'd be able to figure out what happened from that perspective. Yeah, I think it's especially interesting because there, there was a conversation in the book that spoke a lot about how men and women process emotionally, emotion mm. differently, uh, in particular yeah. with regards to violence uh, from men. And I thought it was really interesting that this conversation was taking place in amidst all of these characters actually having very similar responses. Like we can see Dana having a very similar response to the death of her son that her husband has, but the way that she like frames it in her mind is that like, oh, well, I'm doing the same thing, but it's different in these little ways. I guess what's the value in understanding those and what do you as a writer kind of narratively get out of being able to frame how our similarities and differences like create this complexity around us? Yeah, I guess I'm just always... I've always been interested um, in the psychological aspects of crime and um, how different people process it and, I guess, people's motivations for committing crime and then, I guess, the ripple effects of that crime on community on the community, really. Um, and I think it forces us to think more deeply about how a particular set of circumstances came about. I, I think it's also really interesting for you because you've sort of set this not too far from where you grew up and, and, and live yeah. still, Toowoomba. Yeah. Um, what was yes. it like kind of setting this story so close to home? The book could have been set, set anywhere, really. Um, you know, I guess murder occurs across all demographics and as do child protection issues and child protection work. And also I loved, I really love the fact that Crow's Nest has a really evocative and atmospheric name. I thought that would be an excellent kind of name for a crime mm -hmm. novel. And, yeah, I mean I had um, two young children when I wrote this book so I didn't really feel like I had a lot of time for research. So, uh, you know, writing about locations and settings that were intensely familiar to me, you know, that just seemed to work. You know, I'd kind of walk out of the house and um, – I'd be at Queen's Park in Toowoomba. So I guess it that just came about in a really organic way and I'd, I'd write a, about, um, you know, the, the routes I'd take through Queen's Park and have Dana do the same kind of run. So, um, yeah, it just made a lot of sense for, for me to write the story from a place that I was really familiar with. Yeah, I, I thought I thought one other thing that was super interesting about obviously this connecting to yourself. We mentioned earlier that you have a background in working in kind of child protection and harm reduction. Um, mm. You know, obviously there's there's a lot of yourself kind of put forward in that. And the thing I was curious about is this kind of angle that the book takes on how hard it also is on the people doing that work. Like Dana goes through a lot in this case, mm. in terms of, yeah. you know, both the empathy of the people who are suffering, but also the the challenge of actually doing the work, I guess. Do you feel yeah. like there's a lack of understanding that you're sort of reaching to kind of close through this narrative? Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, the only story or one of the few stories the public tends to get is when, uh, you know, things go really wrong in child protection. You know, you see the story splashed on the front of the newspaper and it's generally kind of along the lines of, you know, what were the social workers doing? Why didn't they pick up on this, X, Y, Z? And I just wanted to kind of shine a light on the complexities and the emotional kind of difficulties of doing this work. And, you know, I think Dana is going a lot kind of um, 
on a personal level herself due to the fact she's lost her baby and, you know, doing work that's kind of emotionally charged on top of that, you know, it's just unbelievably difficult if you've got anything going on in your life. So mm. I just didn't really want to sugarcoat the reality of, you know, how hard it is to do the work sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I did really like in that respect, Susan as a character in the book and how she mm. has these like tidy parallels to Dana's life and the kind yeah. of trauma that they've dealt with over their lives using it as a way to contrast how the rest of Crow's Nest kind of has this distrust, almost fear of uh, of the social workers, almost as though they are also law enforcement because they work so closely together. Do you feel that there's like a stronger reaction that kind of social workers get because of how deeply they deal with hurt in society? Yeah, I think t- sometimes there are a lot of kind of misconceptions about um, you know, social workers. And I think, you know, I think that it is a bit of a misconception that coming into contact with social workers or child protection workers is always a negative, whereas in fact, it can be a real positive. You know, a lot of families are just struggling whatever with whatever issue they've got going on um, at that particular point in time. And, you know, sometimes if they get a good work involved with the family, they can put in a case plan and get them um, counselling that they've needed for, you know, for many months. And that can actually just help improve things and make their lives better. But I think sometimes, you know, social workers are kind of viewed in that kind of punitive light alongside police officers, um, because I guess, you know, they do work with police on occasions, but um, there are, they are quite separate roles. Yeah, I guess the other thing that I wanted to get into before we wrap up today is that uh, you were mentioning to me before we got started today that you've been working on and just submitted the second manuscript for uh, Killani, is the the way you pronounce the second book? Yes, that's correct. I mean, going from one debut crime novel to already having submitted a manuscript for a second (laughs) before the first, that is a hurdle that I do not envy you going through. Yes, it was a huge hurdle. You know, I just really, I I was lucky enough to get a two-book deal, um, Mm when I, you know, when I got my book contract. So I just, you know, really just wanted to get in there and write the second one and kind of have at least a draft of that kind of done before before I was having to do publicity for Crow's Nest. So yeah. it feels nice to just have, you know, I guess a draft version of Kalani um, that's that's finished basically. Yeah. I, I imagine mm. so. And I mean, I guess once again, before we wrap up, you know, you're no stranger to the world of writing and uh, literary awards, but it is wonderful to have you as part of the crime fiction community. And I think this is a wonderful debut dealing with like issues that I think, you know, we here on Death of the Reader really love this idea of like taking care of the people in these horrible situations that crime novels keep setting themselves in. And this was a, a real treat. So congratulations on uh, Crow's Nest and all the best with uh with, with dana gibson thank you it's been it's been lovely to be on and thank you so much for having me i'm talking with nikki Bottrum, debut author or well, debut crime author of crow's nest thank you to university of queensland press and dmcpr for copies we'll have links up on the podcast of course if you want to find out more about the book this is death of the reader your murder mystery world tour stick around
You're listening to Death of the Rito. Welcome to your murder mystery world tour. It's good to have you here with us. Herds is in the hot seat as we go chapters 16 to 32 of Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. And Herds, last week on the show, you said that a dead man was alive. You said that a truck-sized plot hole was in fact a young boy. And all of these things are collapsing around you. Yeah, these things are ridiculous. I'll tell you what, I don't think that Officer Darius Crawford could even be... J- Jeremy mm-hmm. with that one foster family that was killed years ago by with the Black the Tongue method. with the same yeah, methods, yeah, yeah. the characters <laughs> who are being killed right now. Um, and he definitely wasn't uh, the person who did a crime in Queensland that Ern was accused of. And he definitely also wasn't the person who hooked uh, Alan Holt up with Michael to get the whole deal done that ended up with him going to jail in the first place. Uh, I'm here to tell you today that the killer is, in fact, uh, I want to say Andrew, Andrew. is the uncle because Andy, yeah. he's he's the last chapter in the book, just after my brother, which is the second my brother. Uh-huh. But that's because Michael gets two chapters. Nice. Okay. <laughs> so. <laughs> Anyway, shout out to the index at the start of the book. Oh, what a great, what a great fun we're having. So anyway, Andrew is the killer and he's just getting chummy chummy. What? Before we go on, Herds, I love this energy. I love the chaos, but I need to know, we're starting our fifth year on the show. Yeah. Uh, which means that the end of this year will be our fifth anniversary. So we can celebrate by reading Woo! the three taps again, I presume. <laughs> I um, hope so. That's a great book. That's a good book. Let's go talk but, about how the fishing line did it. We have done additive <laughs> points or nothing up until this point. We were up to quadruple or nothing last year. And I wanted to know, Herds, uh-huh. what did you want to do for this year? Because we could we could go quintuple, but I must confess it's getting a bit much for me. <laughs> quintuple. What would we even give the point for? Exactly. What is the, the point for? Exactly. One for an alternate theory. I'll tell you what, it could be for something done in the third week, but I feel like we're giving ourselves enough work already. Yeah, I, I kind of um, want to dial it back to triple or nothing. Really? Yeah. You don't want to do the alternate theories anymore? No, no, no. I think we still do okay, the good. alternate theories, and then we have two other points that we can allocate, but here's here's my, what's my the rub? bit, okay? Tell me, what's the, what's the bit? One book each this year, yes. you and I can request as the solve <laughs> okay. a quintuple or nothing. Sure. All right. Only once, though, because Only you know once. you're going to get that and I'm never going to get it. You know, that's how this is going to go. Well, you could do it for this novel if you're feeling that confident. <laughs> I'm not. Okay. Triple or nothing it is then, Herds. Triple or nothing. So you got to pick a different theory Wait. this week and there are two other points on the table. So, yeah, Andy, tell me more about it's clearly Andy. It's Andy uh, because he's he wants that money real bad and he's trying to get at everybody who knows about it, everybody who he thinks knows about it. The problem is he has no clue what's going on. Yeah. He's completely out of the loop. He just He just – stumbled into, let's say, stumbled into Ern's room. It is also Andy's room that Ern gets swapped with because it's of true. the, the work. It's true. Clearly that was him manipulating Catherine. That's yep. why they've all come yep. to the place. Well, you know what happened is that he tried to kill Ern through an elaborate setup involving a fake little girl body in a coffin. A fake <laughs> little girl body. <laughs> Look, there was mention in that the book. That man had to wrench that in coffin open. Yeah, dude. In the book, in the texts. That we are reading, it says that there were coffee-like spills near the truck before Ern got into it. And we know Andy likes coffee. And we know that Andy likes coffee and beer. He's a terrible drunk. That's true. We did see him running out into the blizzard to go get things from the car, like coffee and beer. And actually, that was him cutting the brakes of the truck and hoping it would roll into the sea, into the lake. He wants that money. He wants to run away and leave his horrible wife. And uh, he's going to take the helicopter out and he's going to... 
he's going to blow up the helicopter on the way out and that's going to be his ending. So if he sets the building on fire using the furnace and the wooden skis and the moldy books that have all been foreshadowed, then that will melt the snow around the building, allowing him a clear takeoff. Is that how we get the uh, the two for kills as people die in the burning building? Yes, that's what I want. Nice. Because in the charred bodies, you don't know where one body ends and one right. continues. Anyway. I'm, I'm really liking the sound of this. I have a couple of other questions. Do you? Yeah. Maybe some more serious questions. Yeah, I guess the other thing is we were talking about the uh, the clue with the pigeon and the Oh goodness. What are you what are you what are your thoughts on that? How's that holding up for you? I I realized this week that the pigeon's also on the cover of the book. Yeah, the pigeon with the metal. With the, metal, with the Dickens medal. The, this pigeon is going to actually rip my heart out and <laughs> smoke me with it. That's a thing the pigeons can do. Goodness. I think that the pigeon is a metaphor which I know is trash yep. and I should feel bad. I feel like the pigeon, like getting taxidermied and stuffed after delivering the most important message of its life is a metaphor for Michael. Oh, interesting. The loop that he has is to, is not the message itself, but to like decode a message uh, or find a message. Yeah. I'm not sure where that message is. You think Michael's trying to find a message or give I a message? I think he knows where it is. I think he's trying to read a message and it might be on one of those dollar bills. Nah, that's silly. If he just looks at it, has the secret message, mm. which I assume has to do with with Rebecca, or maybe it proves. Hold on, I thought the I thought the the body in the coffin was a, was a Look, was a dud. What's this Rebecca you're let's, talking about? Let's switch this around. Let's say hypothetically that all of that stuff about Andrew was nonsense, uh-huh. which I know is hard to swallow. But let's Very let's hard. go back to my original theory about Jeremy being alive and not actually dead. Let's say that the loop is to decode a message. Which proves that that their dad, the dad who who died, yes. actually was the one who who killed Rebecca, uh-huh. and that Jeremy is trying to cover that up, or Michael is trying to expose it. What if we said that? Okay. That's fe- that feels like it, it sounded maybe like with a your th- plausible solution. It sounded like with your theory last week that you were suggesting that Michael and Jeremy slash Darius Crawford were working together. No, I probably should not have given that impression. That was foolish. I'm pretty 90% certain that, that Darius, a.k.a. Jeremy, is the one who has killed Michael uh-huh. and also previously killed Green Boots. Do you think Michael the knew foster family and the detectives? This- do you think Michael knew who this Jeremy was? Probably. Uh-huh. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say that revealing this knowledge in front of everyone would have shattered the family, which mm-hmm. is probably what's going to be like the fin- finale of the novel. Um, when Andy sets the house on fire. Yes. When, when Andy sets the house on fire, I assume we're going to get the big reveal of like, Jeremy didn't even die. And actually, he's been killing us. Here's the curious challenge is that that scene in the car is from Ern's perspective. And Ern has promised to be reliable. But not competent. <laughs> but does that not break reliable if he does not relay something that he saw? I mean, look, maybe he did die. Maybe he did die and then- Oh, you reckon we're going to like a heart attack life. sort of technicality yeah. thing? Yeah. yeah, maybe he like died in the car and they and the Ambos Well, we've already done the heart attack technicality with him coming out of the lake. That's right. There well you go. spotted her. That sounds right to me. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so yeah, Jeremy was like, oh no, I'm dead. Mm-hmm. And then someone revived him and they said, rather than giving him back to that, yeah. that evil Cunningham woman with no father figure, let's give him to some foster parents. Well, here's the other bit of reliability that I'm curious about. And I think there's less of a competence hole in this one Uh-oh. is that we have been told that the truck going through the lake was the plot hole, the size Ugh. that you could drive a truck through. But 
if that's the plot hole and Jeremy not being dead isn't the plot hole, does that mean Ern is being unreliable about saying that the truck is the plot hole? I think that the truck plot hole is a literal thing, uh-huh. as in it literally is a hole in the ice that the truck went through and the plot is in the truck. That's the best so answer you think, I can give. you think there's some connection between Jeremy and the body in the, probably, in the coffin then? Probably. Is it I Jeremy's mean, body? I don't think so. I do not think that that is Jeremy's body. Ugh! There's definitely like a strand here that I'm desperately trying to mm-hmm. pick up on. I'm enjoying this. Oh, I feel like I'm so close. Facial reconstruction surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm running out of ideas. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I feel like they're obviously all connected and like Jeremy is trying to like stop this, this secret code from getting out. Yeah. And he's killing Michael and killing Lucy because Lucy was married to Michael. So it's clearly to, clearly to do with like back when they were still yep. together, right? Like before. Right. This all sounds good to me. Let's quickly recap. Do we uh, have to? So oh. Darius is Jeremy yes. is the theory that you're going with. Yes. He's killed everyone and he is the black tongue and has been the whole the, time. He has the black tongue. He yep. has a black tongue. The code, what sort of information do you think they are looking for with the magnifying tool? It's going to be proof of Rebecca's death. I'm going to go with proof around her death that their dad killed her. Yeah, this, the setup that we're clearly getting towards is that the cops and robbers didn't really have that much of a line between them. Yes. But we're kind of still edging on how blurry like, that line was. Yeah, because like either it's – it's because Alan is like a dirty cop, so either it's like proof that Alan was the one who, who killed Rebecca or yeah. it's proof that dad was the one that killed Rebecca, but he was also on the payroll of the mm-hmm. detectives. So you still think that Michael and Jeremy were working together the night that Alan died? <sighs> That's a good question. I'm going to say yes. Okay, cool. I'm going to say yes. All righty. Well, Herds, uh, best of luck as you read through to the end of this book. I think you will have an absolute blast with the way that it wraps things up. Good. And uh, yeah. Is that foreshadowing? Is that a furnace exploding right here? Let's go. Perhaps, perhaps. (laughs) We will be reading all the way to the end of Benjamin Stevenson's Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone next week on the show. Hope to catch you then, and all the best if you're reading along with us. This is a fantastic book to read along with if you've uh, been just lurking along the sides of Death of the Reader. But no pressure, no pressure. I just come think on, be... dive in. The water's warm. <laughs> <laughs> not a frosty mountaintop lake. No, thankfully. No, not. Uh, no I'm not going to say that word. We we said we weren't going to say that again. What? <laughs> <laughs> this is your murder mystery world tour here on Two SCR One Seven Point Three. We'll see you then. We're out of here. <laughs>